Justin Ebert, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Sunnybrook Christian Church. I work mostly with our high school students, and a privilege to do that. Um, today, we are taking a bit of a pause as we kind of go section through section uh, through the book of Acts and studying specifically the depths of baptism. We'll do that periodically as we go throughout this book to kind of pause and take a deeper look into something that is presented in the text. And today, that is baptism. A word of caution as we proceed. Uh, Sometimes you can come into a church service and you can sit back and just absorb and enjoy it and you just kind of walk out and it was just like really refreshing and man, you didn't really have to work. That might not be that day. Today, we're going to do a little bit of hard work. We're going to roll up the sleeves a little bit. We're going to go through some important various texts, um, a lot of texts and acts and throughout the New Testament of what the Bible seems to say about baptism. So on the back of your bulletin, there's a place to take notes. Um, a lot of you have your Acts journals. If you want to take notes, write down questions you have, track with me and just write down verses. Um, as I mention them from up here, that would be of great benefit to you as we proceed. Um, we, like a pendulum, seem to swing from one extreme to the other. Out of a fear of understating something, we at times can swing to the other extreme and overstate something. For instance, my children know that I have a standing policy in how we deal with stuff. Um, if I see that they are not... Um, handling their things in a manner worthy of which the Lord has called them, they know that at any point I may take that toy from them and destroy it before their terrified eyes or throw it in a trash can. And sometimes I can overdo because of my fear not to understate the importance that people are more important than things. The converse is true. Sometimes we understate something because of a fear of overstating it. Uh, we don't want to say too much, and so we end up saying too little. This happens at times with this idea of baptism. Um, quite regularly, we have people come and speak to us and ask us why at this church we seem to emphasize this baptism. We've lately had people question, why would you do this special baptism service that we have tonight? 6.30, West Parking Lot. Why would you do that? And inherent in these questions is a fear. A fear of overstating something. A fear that we as a church might be overstating the importance of baptism. A fear that somehow we are adding to the gospel that if we believe that baptism is important, that must mean that we are adding some kind of works-based salvation. That Sunnybrook heretically believes our standing before God is contingent on our ability to walk down into water and back up on the other side. Which, of course, is not true. It's not true because that's not what we see in the Bible. Out of a fear of overstating baptism, many have understated it. 
converse is true. Out of a fear of understating baptism, many have overstated it or said things about baptism that we just don't find in the text. So my challenge for each of us, the challenge that I put before myself as I prepared a long time for this message, is that at the door, (laughs) go back a little bit, and let's check our opinions, our feelings, our overstatements, our understatements. Let's leave them there. And let's let the word be the authority on what the word teaches. This is one quote I want you to think about as we go throughout this text. When our feelings and our opinions don't match up with the word of God, we are a people who submit our feelings and opinions in order to let the word of God win. Because we do believe that the Bible that we have is this inspired word of God in which God has spoken to us and revealed himself to us, and therefore it holds a place of authority over my own thoughts, over my own opinions, over my own feelings. Let us let the text win as we study baptism today. And as we study baptism today, based on what the text has said, I believe we're going to see three things. These are on your notes, on your bulletin. If you want to look at them there, you can write them down and whatever else you're taking notes in. Number one, baptism is the prescribed and expected next step for those who put faith in Jesus. Number two, baptism unites us with the saving work of Jesus. And number three, baptism is an inauguration into a new life, a new identity, and a new ministry. Let's get started. Baptism is the prescribed and expected next step for those who put their faith in Jesus. Baptism is the commanded, it's the natural, it's the normal next step for those who have first placed their faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit has begun to work in their lives to convict them, to help recognize the sin within them, and to repent, to turn from their old life and follow Jesus. Baptism is the prescribed and expected next step. But what is baptism? Again, we all bring a certain definition. Even if it's a really bad definition that we've never really thought through or studied, we all bring a definition into the word baptism. How would the authors have thought of baptism when they wrote that word? Baptizo, baptismos. How would the audience have heard that word? What would they have been thinking as the writers, as these speakers had said these things? But first of all, they would have connected this with not only an immersion, like a submersion deep into water, they would have also connected it with death. Some of the classical Greek writers in using the word baptizo connect it to like the submersion of a sword into an enemy, the drowning of an enemy under the water, the submersion of an enemy ship into the sea. Quite simply, more clearly, immersion into water. When they hear baptism, they would have heard this immersion into water somehow in connection also with death. It's a little different sometimes than that simple, maybe religious 
experience that we kind of define as baptism, but we want to let the text define, let our understanding of the words, let our understanding of the first century context help us define what baptism is. Baptism, this immersion in connection with death, is prescribed and expected, and we see that with Jesus' own teachings. John chapter 3 John is, or Jesus is talking with a guy named Nicodemus, this Pharisee who has come to Jesus in the dark of night and said, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, as you probably have heard, you must be born again. Nicodemus is confused by this. What do you mean? I, you can't like re-enter into the womb and be born again. That's crazy, guy. Well, Jesus tries to help him see Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Because Jesus teaches that the prescribed, that the expected next step for those who enter the kingdom of God is an immersion through water in the Spirit. We're going to talk a little bit later how there's really important piece in there connecting not just water, but water with faith, water and faith in the saving work of Jesus. But right now, we're just trying to see that Jesus teaches the prescribed and expected next step for those who put their faith in him is baptism. You see it in Matthew chapter 28. Common verse, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus is about to ascend to the right hand of God Almighty after his resurrection. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. The command in this text, as I'm sure you've heard before, is to make disciples. Jesus is telling his disciples to make more disciples as they are going through their life. Into the nations, they are to make more disciples. And an integral part of this, the expected other command in this is to baptize them. To move from a lost person, a dead person, a pagan, a part of the nations, a part of the world, into the family of God. Part of that conversion is baptism. Don't argue with me. That's what Jesus says. Jesus seems to say that this baptism is a prescribed and expected, the natural, normal way in which we follow him. Let's get to the book of Acts, shall we? So if you've got your journals, you can trace through. We're going to just look at a few of the key texts in which baptism is spoken of in Acts. Starting with Acts chapter 2, we've spoken of it already. That Peter had the Spirit pour on him. And he preached this beautiful gospel message of the kingdom of God to the Jews in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Jesus had ascended not too long ago and the Holy Spirit came and he preached this gospel and they hear the gospel and they believe. Peter has convinced them. The Holy Spirit has convicted their heart and they believe. And they realize that there's something to do next. And they ask Peter, in light of the fact that we just killed Jesus, the Lord, the King, the Savior, the Christ, what shall we do? And Peter says this in verse 38. Repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter knows that baptism is the prescribed and expected next step for those who have put their faith in Jesus. That hearing the gospel, preaching the gospel, that believing the gospel, that responding to the Spirit's conviction of your heart, that confession, that baptism, all these things work together. Not as disjointed units, but as an integrated whole. This picture of conversion that we see presented in the New Testament. Acts chapter 8 says this, as the gospel has gone from Jerusalem now into Samaria, Philip is doing some preaching. In verse 12, he preaches the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. And they were baptized because it's the expected next step after they hear the good news. In verses 35 through 39, one of my favorite passages on baptism, Philip is carried by the Spirit to encounter this Ethiopian eunuch. He's a man of high status. He has his own scroll of the text of Isaiah, chapter 53, and he's reading it, and he sees Philip, and he's like, hey, who's this talking about? It seems pretty clear that this, this scroll, this text, Isaiah 53, is talking about like a specific person. Who is that? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him, the Ethiopian eunuch, the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is baptism. What is preventing me from being baptized? I love that response. The next verses talk about how they go down into the water. The Holy Spirit comes. They come up out of the water. His response isn't to to battle, to, to fight, to be divisive. It is in response to who Jesus is and what he has done. I want to be part of that. And it seems to be clear based on Philip's teaching that he is prescribing and expecting baptism as the next step for this believer. Next verse, Acts chapter 10, verses 47 and 48. The gospel has not only been in Jerusalem, it has not only gone to Judea, Samaria, but it is now going to the ends of the earth, to even the Gentiles. If you don't understand the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles, I don't have a ton of time to get into it now, but study it. They didn't like each other. The Jews saw themselves as the chosen people of God and everyone else was an outsider. Everyone else was this pagan, heathen, Gentile, not deserving of the blessings of God. But God himself had a different plan to save the whole world in and through the work of Jesus so that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus might be saved. And we see that happening The gospel comes to a man named Cornelius, and Peter preaches the gospel. And after preaching the gospel, he sees the Holy Spirit coming down on them. And Peter, in recognition of this, says, Can anyone withhold water for being baptized, for baptizing these people? They've already received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded, he prescribed to them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It's the prescription. It's the expectation. It's normal. It's the natural next step for those who have put their faith in Jesus. We see also in Acts chapter 9, chapter 22, that Paul himself was baptized. 
We see in Acts 16 that Lydia, a dealer of purple goods, is baptized after believing in the gospel. We see a Philippian jailer who's about to kill himself because the shame he's brought upon himself and his family for letting his prisoners escape. And they say, no, no, don't do that. Don't stop, stop. He's about to take his life, but instead is given life as he hears the gospel, responds in faith, and is baptized because that is the prescribed next step for those who put their faith in the saving work of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 18, a unique text comes to us. There's this man named Apollos. Let's read Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Okay, he didn't have a full picture of what it looks like to respond to Jesus. He knew about Jesus, but he was missing a part of it. Let's skip down to chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, some followers of Jesus. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because that's the expectation. Okay? When you hear the gospel and the Spirit convicts you of sin and you put your faith in Jesus, it's the only way to be reconciled back to God that the Holy Spirit comes at you. You're justified, made right, declared righteous before God because of your faith, because of your belief. And they said, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, and in what then were you baptized? They said, John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Here, in this text, we see the one example in which somebody is re-baptized in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, even though it's not common in the Scriptures, it's very common in the ministry that we do here at Sunnybrook. We have a lot of people coming to us as we teach the scriptures saying, I think I might need to be baptized. And we have a conversation with them and we come to find out they've actually already been immersed. They've already been immersed into the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in fact, we actually already see the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. We actually already see how he has gifted and equipped them to do the work of ministry, how he's specifically given them these unique opportunities to proclaim the good news of Jesus and the kingdom of God, that they are making disciples, but something's going on within them. They're feeling something internally that they don't realize they felt since the last time, which was at their baptism. And so most times, we tell people, you don't need to be baptized, you don't need to be re-baptized because you, you, you've already been baptized into the name of Jesus. 
You already have the Holy Spirit within you. We can see that in your life, based on the fruit in your life. You're already doing the work of ministry. You're just feeling the Holy Spirit in a new way. He's convicting you about something, and you need to respond appropriately in that way, which doesn't always mean baptism. Most times, we do not prescribe rebaptism. But, but there are those unique cases in which somebody has not, in fact, been baptized into the name of Jesus. They have been baptized into the name of trying to impress the cute girl at camp. Okay? You laugh, but this is, like, true. Oh, man, my buddy's going up there. I guess I should go up there. Well, okay. Do I cry? No, don't cry. Do cry. Okay. So they, they get baptized, not because of they, they desire to repent because of who God is and what he's done through Jesus, not because they actually believe the gospel, that they actually believe in Jesus, but because uh, they just, that's what other people are doing, I guess. And they don't have the spirit and they don't live a life of following Jesus and they don't like have a life of ministry. In that case, we would say, yeah, you need to be baptized into the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people are baptized into like a false religion, like Mormonism. And we say, like, you actually haven't been baptized in the first place. You, you went through this empty ritual, but you haven't actually been baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There are other times people are baptized in a way that the New Testament doesn't describe anywhere. And sometimes we say rebaptism, or really your first baptism, is necessary. I would say that's rare. Most times we say, no, that's not what you need. You need to respond appropriately in this way to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. Okay? Um, we see in all of these cases that baptism is the prescribed and expected next step for those who have put their faith in Jesus. Number two, here's our second point that we see from the New Testament scriptures. Baptism unites us with the saving work of Jesus. Okay, I said that very intentionally. Baptism unites us with the saving work of Jesus. Can I tell you something that might make you uncomfortable? Your baptism doesn't save you. Okay, you're like, eh, I'm fine with that. Can I tell you something else? Your faith doesn't save you. Oh, okay, easy there, bro. Okay, back it up a little bit. What are, you, what are you saying? Okay, before you let your opinions and your feelings get in the way, let's let the authority teach us that, in fact, baptism, walking down into the water, our ability to walk out of the water isn't what saves us. That our ability to say yes isn't what saves us. What saves us is the work of God in and through the person of Christ and the regeneration that we experience through the Holy Spirit. It is God alone who saves us. God saved you. God saved you. Here's how I know that's true. Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, 
led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another because sin has wrecked our lives. It has wrecked this world. It has created a chasm of which we cannot cross on our own. We cannot save ourselves. Something else had to happen. Something else had to happen. Next verse. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. He saved us. God, out of the abundance of who he is, the love that he is, the mercy that he has, the overabundance of kindness, the storehouses of blessings that he alone has, he opened those up freely to us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Your baptism doesn't save you. Your faith does not save you. Those things unite you to the saving work of Jesus. It is God who saved you in and through the person and work of Jesus by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The washing, of water, the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified, declared right by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Yes, the way we latch on to God's saving work is through faith. And re- repentance is part of that, where we, the Holy Spirit works in us, convicts us, and we say, no longer do I want to follow this life of sin, but I want to follow Jesus. And the prescribed and expected next step after that is to be baptized into the death and the resurrection of Jesus, because baptism unites us to the saving work of Christ. Galatians 3 says something similar, for in Christ you are all sons, daughters of God, through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Here's the imagery here. That we literally like put on a new set of clothing. That when we're baptized into Jesus because of the faith we have in Jesus' saving work, we put on Christ. And when God looks upon us, he no longer sees you as a child object of his wrath. Because of sin. He no longer sees you as a slave to sin. He no longer sees you. He sees Christ and his finished work. When we're baptized into Christ, we put on Christ and we get to attach ourselves to what God has already done in the work of Christ. God saves us, not me. God saved me. Romans 6 says it probably as clearly as any text. Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. I mean, I I hope you've been here when you've seen a baptism. And we say, and it's my privilege in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit to baptize you. And you're buried with Christ and raised to new life. This moment in which we attach ourselves to Christ's own death. We are dying to our old self. And we are attaching ourselves to the saving work of Jesus. And then we are raised up by the power of God in Christ's resurrection to this new life. This new life. 
Next slide. For if you have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's one reason we, we do believe in immersion, because we see that. To be united with him in death, so that we shall be certainly united with him in his resurrection, it's that imagery of being buried down beneath the water, just as Jesus was down in the tomb and being resurrected by the power of God, because it's God that saves us resurrected into this new life as Jesus was resurrected from the dead. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our next text is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. And you Bible scholars will recognize this text. Now, preacher boy, you say baptism doesn't save you, but I know this verse... Look it up. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Okay, you're contradicting yourself, Justin. Are you just giving us your opinions? Are you just giving us your feelings? Are you doing exactly what you told us not to do? Keep reading. Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism, immersion, apart from the saving work of Jesus and his resurrection is just a bath. Immersion, baptism, separated from faith, separated from the saving work of Jesus Christ is just a bath. It's the removal of dirt. It's of no, con well, it's of consequence because I prefer you to smell not bad. But it's of no consequence salvifically. Baptism, immersion, apart from the saving work of Jesus in your faith, and that saving work is of no consequence. But it's baptism and light of your faith in God's saving work through Jesus, through the resurrection of the dead that makes it, makes it regeneration. It makes it something new where you're baptized and you die to an old self and you turn and you're raised into this new self, this new life. We are a new creation in and through Christ. Our last point is that baptism is an inauguration into new life, a new identity, and a new ministry. And to study this, we want to look at Jesus' own baptism. Yes, Jesus himself was Baptized. And we see it in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, actually. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. We believe that baptism is an inauguration into a new life, into a new identity, into a new ministry because, well, in part, because that's what we see in Jesus' own baptism. In conjunction with some other texts we're going to see, Jesus was anointed with the Spirit. He was anointed with the Spirit. And then he was affirmed in his identity, the beloved Son of God. And then after this, if you read um, later on in the text, it's his earthly ministry. 
He has the Spirit poured out on him. He has his identity affirmed, and then he begins this earthly ministry. And here's what we see in the New Testament, that that is actually what happens to us. Let's read in Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Having been buried with him, Jesus, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Baptism is an inauguration, an official beginning into a new life in Christ. It's a new life now, like you actually now become a new creation. I was talking to Mrs. Hurst, my principal for elementary, and she was speaking to me about the sermon, and I told her, That was evidence that the Holy Spirit is real and that he is on me. The Holy Spirit has given me a new life. An uncle of mine likes to tell me when I see him that, you know, he knows the Spirit of God has worked in me because he thought by the time I was 25 I would either be dead or in jail. My mom likes to tell me that from five months to about five years it was quite the experience. Based on my life, you can see the Holy Spirit working because I've been given something new now, but not just now, but also something new then. That baptism is an inauguration into a new life now, but a new life forever. That there's this mix, this integration in which we, through faith, are justified, made right, declared righteous before God. In which we go through this long process of our life of sanctification, being made holy by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, the people of God in our life, the Word of God. And ultimately, we look forward to that glorification when we finally, all of these things, these hopes, these things we put faith in become true forever. We're given a new eternal body and live in the new heavens and the new earth. Because baptism is an inauguration or official beginning into the new life of Christ. Let's look at John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Baptism is an inauguration, an official beginning to a new identity. Your identity before was born of the devil, according to 1 John. An object of God's wrath, dead in your trespasses and sin. And then, God saved you. And you have been given the right to become a children of God, adopted into God's family by God's saving work. Baptism is a start, an official beginning to that new identity. And we're going to spend our last text looking at Ephesians chapter 4. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, that would be great. Ephesians chapter 4. We've already seen that baptism is an inauguration into a new life. It's an inauguration into a new identity. And here we are going to see that it is an inauguration into a new ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Next slide. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I don't know how you can read a text like that and say that baptism is just not all that important. That somehow we can understate what Paul, what Jesus, what Peter, what John seemed to teach as being quite important. This baptism which unites us to the saving work of Jesus. This baptism which at some level unites us to the body of Christ, which connects us to the head, which is Christ, which God connects us then to the Father. I don't know how you can say that's inconsequential. Not that important. Chapter 4, verse 11 says this, He, God, gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, the leaders of the church, those who have been called to lead the saints, to equip the saints, to build up those who have put their faith in Jesus, been given a new life, been given a new identity, and now a new ministry, because our job as leaders of the church is to equip you, the holy ones, the saints, for the work of ministry. After Jesus' baptism, he began his earthly ministry. As you come out of the waters of baptism, you have been put in charge. If you become a co-heir with Christ, you have been called to ministry in the circles which God has given you. In your families, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, you have been called to glorify God and make disciples by speaking and living according to the good news of Jesus and the kingdom of God by the power of the spirit that is within you and given to you. We have a new ministry and it's our job as the church to equip you, to build you up so that eventually we become more mature, that you become more mature and we become a mature body because we want to see the gospel, we want to see Jesus reign as king in Stillwater. We want to see him reign king in our country. We want to see him reign king in Japan. We want to see him reign king over what he deserves, which is all things. That is beautiful. That God would open up his blessings, his storehouses of kindness and love, and offer it to us, not because of anything that we've done, but in spite of what we've done, and bring us to be part of his kingdom of his ministry. So why do we teach the importance of baptism at Sunnybrook? Well, baptism is how we respond because it's what we read. Immersion is just what we do because it's what we see. Because at Sunnybrook, we desire to let this, the word of God, be authoritative over our lives. It's not our desire to overstate anything or to understate anything, but to truly lift up what God has spoken to us. Because baptism is prescribed and expected. It's natural. It's normal. For those who have put their faith in Jesus, repented. 
that somehow this unites us with God's saving work in and through Jesus and that this somehow officially begins us into this new life, into this new identity, into this new ministry. I know that baptism for some can be a place of divisiveness, but I don't know how you can get there from Ephesians 4. I don't know how you can get there from reading the words of Jesus, from the words of Peter, from the words of Paul. Baptism seems to unite us. It unites us together. It seems to unite me, you, to Christ, and Christ unites us to God. It seems to be important. And I think baptism shouldn't lead us to a divisiveness, but it should lead us to worship. It should lead us to thankfulness. It should lead us to unity. And right now, as the band comes up and as our communion servers go back, I want to lay out for each of us a very clear response. For each of us, the place that we sit today, as the men and the women come forward to pass out the elements of communion, if you are not someone who has put your faith in Jesus, if you have not attached yourself to the saving work of God in Christ, then let that tray pass. And think about Jesus. Think about the good news and the implications that God has sent Jesus to save you. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, for those of us who have attached ourselves to the saving work of Jesus, take the bread, take the cup, hold it in your hand, and together, as a body, we will take it in just a moment. Now, your response. Some of you are still at odds here. You have questions remaining. You may not be frustrated, but you just, you're not sure yet. Walking through these scriptures today helped a bit, but you still have some questions. My challenge to you, study the word of God. Let the word of God change your opinions, change your feelings, and may you respond appropriately to the word of God, to the spirit of God. Some of you maybe have never made that that step of moving from dead to alive. You've never responded to the Spirit calling you based on the preaching of the good news. You've never turned from your old life and submitted to Jesus to follow Jesus. And yours is pretty clear based on our reading today. Repent and be baptized. If that's you, if you feel like the Spirit is leading you to faith, to repent, to be baptized. After the service, we will be up here. We would love to talk to you. Not only that, we'd love to see you be baptized tonight with this body during this celebration of what God has lifted up as part of this conversion process, going from dead to alive by the saving work of Jesus. For the rest of us, for those of us who are in our hands, holding or about to hold this bread and this cup, I want you to remember your baptism. I want you to be overwhelmed by and grateful for and thankful for what God has done by opening up his free love for you. That he has shown kindness to you 
that you didn't deserve this, that you couldn't earn this, that he has given this to you as a free gift and you get to partake of that. You get to unite yourself to God's saving work in the work that he's done. Remember the faith that you have. Remember the repentance, this old life you used to have and this new life you have in following Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Remember those people. Remember those people who preached the gospel to you. Remember those hands that baptized you. Remember those who came alongside of you and equipped you and trained you to do the work of ministry. Mostly remember Jesus. Remember that with this bread, we remember that he willingly let his flesh be torn apart for you and for me. That God put on flesh and dwelt among us, that he saved us he did it with joy. Let us take this bread and eat. And let us remember the blood that was spilled on our behalf. Take and drink. Now as the next step of response, we open up our stuff. We open up what God has first given to us and we respond by willingly giving back to God, joyfully willing, giving back to God because we want to see him made king. We want to see the gospel preached in Stillwater, see it preached in this country, preached in Japan, in Poland. So we give back to God what he has already given to us. And after that, we will respond by praising him for who he is, for what he has done, and who he says we are.